Podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding Turn your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. If you're reading from the Blue Pew Bible, this can be found on page 983. Colossians 1.15. Let's hear the word of God. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The reading of the word of God. Let's pray together and ask the Lord, to bless the preaching of His Word. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do thank You for this Word. We thank You, Lord, uh, that You promise uh, to accomplish Your purposes in the preaching of it. We thank You, Lord, that this doesn't depend on me. It doesn't depend on any of us, but completely on You and Your Spirit working uh, by and with Your Word. And Lord, we plead with You this morning that You would do that. We, uh, we need You to change us. We can't change ourselves. We pray that You would do that by Your Spirit uh, to Your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I'd like to start this morning with a question. Uh, and this question applies to everyone here. It's a question you might not think often about, but one that you have an answer for nonetheless. The question is, How do you make sense of your life? Another way to ask this is, what is it that gets you up in the morning? What gets you out of bed in the morning? Is it a successful job or the hope of one? Maybe the hope of a promotion? Could be just looking forward to the next vacation. Maybe it's the hope of well-mannered children. Maybe a family in general. Maybe you're waking up thinking about the prestige and recognition that you might soon gain in the community, maybe at your job, maybe in the church. But it may be that you wake up in the morning feeling like you're stuck in a rut. And that if you're honest with yourself, you don't really know why you get up in the morning. You get up just because that's what you think the next thing you're supposed to do really is, with no real reason behind it. Well, what this question is driving at is really the question of the meaning of your life. I know that's a a big question. Where do you find that meaning? Where do you find that purpose? 
How do you find meaning and make sense out of the messiness that is your life? Well, I was a, uh, I was a philosophy major in college, which gave me a really expensive opportunity to ask these type of questions and to think through them and read and write about them. The, uh, the introduction to philosophy course, Philosophy 101, was, uh, was titled The Meaning of Life. A pretty, uh, pretty bold claim there. And it is, it's a convenient title for a class when people ask you what your major is and you say philosophy and it's kind of like, oh, okay. Yeah, that's not really practical and it's not worthwhile, but you can at least say that you've had a class on the meaning of life, which is nice. Um, I didn't find the answer to the meaning of life in that class, by the way. And in fact, the answer to that question is not going to be found in any philosophy at all, but rather in a person. The question of how we make sense of our lives is intimately wrapped up with the question of who Jesus is. We have to understand who Jesus Christ is for our lives to make sense. That's how important this question of Jesus is. Christ is the centerpiece and really the main character of the one story that's going to make sense of our messy lives. There's one story that will do that. And Jesus is the main character in that story. So an understanding of Jesus as Lord and King of all will change the way that you view your life. We took a group of high school students to Estes Park, Colorado earlier this summer for RYM. Um, We spent a few days there in Rocky Mountain National Park, which is right there in Estes Park. And in this section of the park, as you drive around and even in the town itself, Everywhere you look into the National Park, you can see Long's Peak. And Long's Peak is the tallest peak in Rocky Mountain National Park. It's 14,259 feet. It's really, really tall. Not the tallest in Colorado, but it's difficult to summit. But this view from the top of Long's Peak is absolutely breathtaking. From the top, from this height, you can see all of Rocky Mountain National Park and even into southern Wyoming. That's how high up this is. So this view from the summit really does change your perspective on both the immensity of Rocky Mountain National Park and even the Rocky Mountains in general. This passage in Colossians is a piece of mountaintop Christology. It gives us this greater, big-picture perspective on who Jesus is which then is ultimately going to change our perspective on our own lives. This passage is actually a hymn that was used in some of the earliest churches during worship. And it's one of the most succinct and beautiful descriptions of who Jesus is. And if we boil it down, these six verses, to one sentence, he's saying this, Christ is the supreme, preeminent Lord and King of all creation and all new creation. That's really what this passage is about. To say it even more simply, Christ is the glorious King of all. That's Paul's point here. And we're going to be camping out in this passage for the next four weeks because there's so much here. And we'll explore it in four different sections to come to a greater understanding of who Christ is, ultimately with the focus of understanding our lives better, understanding what it is that makes sense of our lives. This week, we're going to look at 15 through 17. What Paul says here is that Christ is king over all creation 
And therefore, his rule extends everywhere. He is in complete control of all things. And what I want to first look at is how Paul describes the supremacy of Christ, this rule that he has over all things. And we'll look at a few implications of that for our own lives. Well, this message of the supremacy of Christ over all created things was vitally important to the original audience here. Paul's writing this to a group of people who were under the influence of some false teachers. And it's pretty controversial as to what exactly the heresy was, as to what the false teaching was. But probably it contained two elements. One were, were these old Jewish practices and laws, similar to what Darwin's been talking about in Hebrews. That they were still trying to implement some kind of dietary laws, for example, or, or some kinds of, uh, of festal moon uh, feasts and things like that, celebrating Sabbaths in a, in a specific way. So that was part of it. But the other part of it was this mystic paganism. And this was, this was a view that where they said if you did certain things, if you worshipped angels, you would have some sort of experience where you would come closer to God. You, you would find some other way to God in this experience that you could not have otherwise. You could attain some level of spiritual power that was impossible unless you did these things. They called for practices such as asceticism, which is uh, it's severe bodily discipline, even like physical torture. And if anybody has seen the Da Vinci Code or read the book, this is what Silas's character does. When he has the, the thing wrapped around his leg and he flogs himself at night for his sins. This is what these false teachers were calling for, in addition to angel worship. But at the core of this false teaching was this belief that there's some level of greater spirituality or power even that could be obtained through these practices. And Paul's response is really pretty simple. He just says Christ is Lord of all. First, we could ask, how does that relate? Here's what he's saying. All of these human philosophies and religions have their origin in man. They're man-made. And Paul even says later on that these practices have an appearance of wisdom. Think being very strict with yourself. You can stop yourself from, from sinning even. But he says they have the appearance of wisdom, but they have no power at actually stopping the flesh. So they look as though they have power, but they come to nothing. They have no authority. They have no ability to bring about any real change in these followers. They're not going to find what they're looking for in these practices. And so Paul sets all of these strict practices opposite of who Christ is. The antidote to this is the person of Christ who is the king of all. He's saying Christ is all we need. And look how he describes Christ's rule. He's going to use a number of different phrases to get at it, and we'll look at each briefly. First, in verse 15, he says that he's the image of the invisible God. So he starts out showing Christ's relationship to God the Father. Christ has made God visible. And John, in his gospel, has said something similar. He says in Chapter 1, verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And we see that often in John. Jesus of Nazareth is God, and therefore he reveals God to us in a completely unique way. We see God 
in the flesh, in the person of Jesus. Paul's purpose here is to show then that all glory, all power, and all authority that we would ascribe to God can just as rightly be ascribed to Jesus. So Christ, as the image of the invisible God, carries all the power and authority that God does. And secondly, in the same verse, Paul makes this point. Nothing that is created was created apart from Christ. We see that in a couple of phrases. The first is, the firstborn over all creation. And now, I know we need to look closely at that verse, because if you just read that on the surface, probably what you could come away thinking, at least outside of the context, is that Christ was created. He was the firstborn of creation, therefore we would think He was the first one to be created. This is not at all what Paul is saying. And it's so important that we understand Him here on this point. Such huge, huge harm has been done and can be done to the faith if we don't understand Paul rightly on this point. Now, this problem, what arises if we think that, is that if Christ is just a part of the creation, then He is no longer God. And if He's no longer God, then He has no power to save. So unless Christ is fully God and fully man, there's no salvation and really, there's no Christianity anymore. And this isn't a new misinterpretation of this passage. The early church dealt with this heresy of denying the Godhood of Christ at the Council of Nicaea in 325. And this heresy was called Arianism. They, they just wanted to say that Jesus is a mere man. And of course, you hear that today still. Uh, this morning, later on in our order of worship, before communion, we'll actually confess the Nicene Creed, which is the creed that came of that council. Uh, take a good look at it when we confess that section on Christ and just what it says about Christ's relationship to creation. So let's take a little bit more uh, of a look at the firstborn of all creation there. We get help for the, with the use of this word in Psalm 89.27. It says this, And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. And this psalm is talking about the son of David being king here, which is then ultimately pointing to Christ as king. And the word firstborn there is used in a sense, just as it is in Colossians, as a position of prominence and significance. It's, it's a title of honor that's given here. He stands most important and most prominent over all creation. So that's really what, what firstborn is meaning here. Verse 16 makes this even clearer. It says at the beginning there that in him all things were created. At the end of the verse, he says once again, all things were created through him. So Paul is not saying Christ was created. Rather, Christ is the agent of creation, as some commentators put it. He's the one in whom and through whom all things were created. He's the ruler and the king of the cosmos. And in verses 16 and 17, Paul's going to go on and describe the extent of Christ's kingship. Just, just how far his kingship actually stretches. He said that Christ is the creator of all things, but he gets into greater detail here. He says that in Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, 
visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. And really, if you think about that phrase, it doesn't get any more exhaustive than that. All things on heaven and earth, all things visible and invisible. That pretty much includes everything. But he gives these specific words, though, to the Colossians. Christ rules over these thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities that were being fed to them by those false teachers. So all of these mystical powers that supposedly had some real power are shown to be completely under the authority of Christ. Christ rules over them just as well. So there is nothing, there's nothing outside the control of Christ. There's no power in existence that is not under His rule. That's the scope of Christ's sovereignty here. Paul's point is to say that Christ rules over everything. Christ rules over, and you just fill in the blank. You name it, Christ is in control of it. There's a great quote from a, maybe familiar to some of you, from a theologian and actually former prime minister of the Netherlands in the early 20th century. His name's Abraham Kuyper. He says this, There is not a square inch on the whole plane of human existence over which Christ, who is Lord over all, does not proclaim, This is mine. Now, our son, Jack, is at the age where all he wants to do is grab whatever it is that you have in your hand right out of it. He wants to take what you have and he's probably going to put it right in his mouth. That's, that's where we're at right now. Cell phones, remote controls, coffee cups, Coke cans, you name it, he's going to grab it. And he's grabbing it almost as if to say, mine, 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 mine. And I know he can't talk yet, but I, I'm sure that's not far behind with the actual word, mine. Well, Jesus rightly says, this is mine about everything in existence. And just think about what this means. This means that Christ has something to say about every single part of your life. Every single part of your life is under the rule of Christ. And that's really one of the reasons that I can stand up here and say that Christ is the only way that we can make sense of our lives. Christ created all things. And therefore, he's got a real interest in all things. And all things owe him allegiance as he is the king of all. Here's just one more implication of this. This is very, very important. It means that all of your life is sacred. And we often use these two titles to, to categorize our whole lives. We've got the sacred category, what we're doing now. It's our Sunday activities, it's our religious activities, our small groups, things like that. So we have like the Sunday of our lives, which is the sacred. But then we have the secular, which is pretty much everything else, but specifically thinking about what happens during the week. Work, with school, those sorts of things. And another way that this shows itself, this divide, this sacred-secular divide, is in how we think about ministers. So many think that the work of a pastor is classified as sacred, but that the work of the Christian businessman or the Christian teacher or the Christian lawyer is somehow secular, that there's a real difference there, that the pastor's work is holier or more God-honoring than those Christians working in other professions. Well, the Bible knows of no such divide. 
There's no dichotomy between the sacred and the secular in the Bible. This is something that we've come up with. All of life is lived in the sacred category because Christ is the King of all creation. There's nothing that stands outside of His rule. Every part of our lives matters to Christ. There's not a part of your life that Jesus doesn't care intimately about. You name it, He cares intimately for it. In verse 17, if we look back there, Paul says that in Christ, all things hold together. He's the sustainer of all creation. It means this. If Christ were to take His hands off creation, if He were to stop sustaining it as He is now, everything would fall apart. One commentator puts it this way. Apart from Christ's continuous sustaining activity, all would disintegrate. That's how involved He is with creation. What does that mean for us? Well, not only does He have something to say about all aspects of our lives, but He's intimately involved in, with every part of our lives. He's sustaining our lives in that way. He cares and is intimately involved in all of it, in the midst of this loving control that He has. Paul says even more here, though. At the end of verse 16, he says that all things were created for Him. He's the goal or the focus of creation. I know that's a weird way to talk. We don't talk like that. It's weird to say that a person is the focus or goal even of creation. But what Paul means is that all things are ultimately going to show forth the glory of Christ. In Christ, God shows forth His purpose for all of creation. Now, here's how big this is. The entire story of the history of the world finds its point in Christ. He's the main character. He's the one that really matters. Everything else falls below the line. Everything else is secondary to who Christ is, to what He's done, what He is doing, and what He will do. That's how important Christ is in this. Well... Even with the, uh, the knowledge of Christ's rule in creation, there are still problems that, that arise in us as we think about this. And honestly, there are times when this isn't so easy for us to stomach. That is, Christ's rule over everything. To speak of Christ as Lord over all is one thing, but to live in light of that truth and to really take it to heart is something different. Ultimately, and we'll talk about this, it provides comfort like nothing else does. But, in spite of that, there's, there are real struggles uh, that come about when we're trying to come to grips with the reality that Christ is King over all. That He rules over us in that way. The biggest obstacle I'm going to suggest to you this morning to this truth being cherished and loved is really what it says about you and what it says about me. If Jesus is King that it means two things. One, I'm not king. And the other is that you're not king either. Now, how does that show itself? Because you're probably not thinking, I wish I was king. You know, that's probably not something you're thinking in your mind. But how does that show itself? How does that, that belief deep down, that heart belief show itself? Well, it may be as simple as this. You try and order and organize your life 
So much so that you can live as though you're in complete control of your surroundings. That you have everything so organized just the way you like it that it puts you in a position to be in utter control. And it's so easy to deceive ourselves into thinking that in that situation we really do have some kind of power. That we really do have control over our lives. In the movie Little Miss Sunshine, came out last year, one of the main characters, Richard, he's the father, is a motivational speaker. And he's written his own self-help program called Refuse to Lose. And throughout the movie, it's kind of a little subplot, throughout the movie he's trying to fix the members of his family and the friends of his family with this program. And of course, they don't respond very well to it. Uh, it's a really a pretty standard self-help curriculum that is driving at one main point. And that point is take control of your life. And that's the objective, really, of all self-help material. And let me say this. I'm not talking here about living responsibly. That's something different from the type of control I'm talking about. And I think here's the litmus test. Does the control that you're seeking to exercise in your life do more to increase your own comfort or does it do more to increase your ability to love people? Is your comfort the priority over that of loving those around you? And really, we think that if we're running the show, then our lives are going to be much easier. If we can just get control of things things will be easier. There will be no call on our lives anymore to reach out and love people that are hard to love. There's no call on our lives to give of our time or our resources. If we were in charge, we do become kings. We do what we want. I become the most important person in all the decisions that I make. And this is not a new struggle. The struggle of of despising and even hating the authority that Christ has over us. This goes all the way back to Genesis 3 and the fall in the garden. The heart of the disobedience of Adam and Eve was really just a doubting and a despising of God's authority. That's really what it was. They thought they knew better than God. They were going to exercise that authority in taking and eating of the tree He told them not to eat of. That right there is the heart of our sin and the heart of our rebellion against God. We think we know better than God. We don't want Him to have anything to do with us. That, I think, is what can so easily show forth in our own hearts when we really face the reality of Christ's rule. What's the reason for that struggle? Well, part of the reason, at least, is that I think we lose sight of the type of king that we serve. Because when we recognize who this king is, there's going to be comfort in his rule that's found nowhere else. We have in our mind some sort of tyrant or dictator, authoritarian style leadership that, that we're almost puppets in that case. Christ is not a tyrant. Christ is not a dictator. Christ is the same King that Paul describes in Philippians 2 as making Himself nothing and taking the form of a servant. He's also the same King who in John 13 performed that slave's task of washing His disciples' feet. This is the same King we're talking about here. And most significantly of all, 
this is the same king who died on your behalf. He's died to deliver us from that doubting, from that fear of his lordship. If you look back to the text here, right before our our passage in 13 and 14, Paul says this. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So we're called to trust and submit to a king who has not only died for us, not only has he done that, but he's promised to work all things together for good. That's his promise to us. And remember, he's the focus and the goal of creation. So all of history is working towards his glory. And what that means for us is that ultimately all history is working for our good. That's our real hope. Well, finally, a point of immediate application. Think of this rule of Christ. As I said earlier, this truth provides unparalleled comfort in the midst of suffering. One of the hardest things in the midst of suffering is to fight that temptation of thinking that one, God isn't in control. He doesn't really know what's going on here. He can't change these things. Or two, and this is worse, that he is in control, but that he just doesn't care. Paul says here in Colossians 1 that neither of those are the case. He's in control. In the hymn, This is my Father's world, there's a line that says this, my favorite line of this song. And though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. Though it seems otherwise in our circumstances, Christ is in control. You're not in the situation you are by accident. And not only is He in control, but He's intimately involved in your situation. He's sustaining all of creation, which means He knows the very details of what's happening in your life, even in the midst of your suffering. Now, I don't want this to sound trite, because it's easy to kind of give these, uh, these truisms to people in the midst of suffering without really hearing what what they're dealing with. I know that in the midst of real suffering, believing this is one of the hardest things to do. But this is all that we really can do. God doesn't give us another option. The Bible doesn't give us another way. Christ calls us to trust and rest in His loving involvement in our situations. That doesn't in any way downplay or or lessen the severity or the, the real pain and suffering that you're dealing with. This is the answer, though. This is a change in perspective on what's going on in your life. This means recognizing that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. Here's the comfort that this passage provides. One commentator says this, For those who have been redeemed by Christ, the universe has no ultimate terrors. They know that their Redeemer is also Creator, Ruler, and goal of all. So even as your life seems to be spinning out of control, and it may not be severe suffering, it may not be something that, that, that you have a hard time getting out of bed in the morning because of the pain that you're enduring. It might not be anything that severe. It could just be just meaninglessness. 
could just be that I don't really see any common pattern here in my life. I just get up and do the next thing. In the midst of that, even as your life seems spinning out of control like that, Christ is there intimately with you. Sovereignly bringing His good, His perfect, His pleasing will to pass. And it's that knowledge of Christ's rule that then supercharges the rest of your life with significance. That's the point that Paul can make here from this passage. There's meaning and purpose because Jesus is King of all. He reigns over all and we are His subjects. So every part of your life, every single part, whether it's full of joy and celebration and praise God that it is right now, or if it's full of mourning and suffering, every single part is significant as you follow Christ in all those circumstances. Christ's rule unshackles us from anxiety, from worry, from fear, and even self-pity that can just paralyze us in these situations. In every way, we're free to move out even from ourselves. We move away from ourselves to serve this King by loving Him and loving people. And it's that recognition of Christ as King over creation and following Him as His subjects that is ultimately going to make sense of our messy lives. If you're visiting this morning, maybe you're skeptical to the claims of Christianity, or at least maybe you're unfamiliar with what, what Christians believe, this is one of the claims the Bible makes. Life makes no sense apart from Christ. There's no meaning. There's no purpose Without Him. I realize that's a strong claim, but it's what the Bible says. Christ is all we have to cling to. He is King and He reigns now. And the glorious part of this is that you can know Him now. We can know this King intimately. You can choose to follow Him today. All that's required to follow this King is a helpless, dependent faith. We can bring nothing to this King that will be of any lasting value to Him. We bring our sin. That's all we bring. But He looks on us with mercy. He takes us into His kingdom. He transfers us from the domain of darkness and puts us into His own kingdom in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. For all of us here this morning, we're called to believe and trust and follow this King. May He give us grace to do that. Let us pray. Lord, we thank You that You are King of all. We thank You that You know our situations so intimately because You are even sustaining them now. You don't sit high above us, uninvolved in our lives, but You are intimately there. You give us a graceful, gracious presence by Your Spirit. We take comfort, Lord, that You are in control of all and that because we're united to You, all glory that is Yours will work out for our good. Lord, we pray that You would help us to believe these promises. We confess that they don't come easily. We need Your grace even in that. Help us, Lord, to follow You. Help us to do so joyfully. Again, we pray, do this by Your Spirit. We're helpless and needy people. 
We thank you, Lord, that you promised to do that and even that it's your delight to do that. We give you all glory and honor. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Shall my soul with rapture trace